Hello and welcome to this college podcast following the excellent webinar on new and future treatment strategies in medical retina presented by Mike Haller. I am delighted to announce that Mike has joined us once again to share his expertise on this important topic. To introduce Mike to all our listeners out there, he is a consultant optometrist in medical retina at Sussex Eye Hospital in Brighton and is also a visiting lecturer at the University of Hertfordshire. Mike previously lived in New Zealand, where he gained an IP qualification in 2006, practicing in community and undertaking academic research. Mike was awarded Fellowship of the College in 2021 and is also a college assessor, while presenting numerous CPD accredited lectures and workshops over the years. So Mike, we're very happy to welcome you back and to have someone of your vast experience and knowledge to join us here again today to answer some questions that delegates had at the webinar, but didn't quite have the time to cover. Thank you, Perrin. Now, as you would expect, the, the webinar was very well received and our delegates had lots of interesting questions. Now, in the interest of clarity for those listening, I've collated the questions and merged similar themes together to ensure all the questions are covered in a consistent manner. So without further ado, let's get going. So, Mike, the first theme is on uh, vein occlusion. Uh, and we have several questions on referral urgency. But what would the approach or protocol be in your local area? Uh, and what was the rationale behind that? So we, we would put a, uh, a six-week uh, window on seeing a vein occlusion. So, so we, I might have briefly touched upon it in the webinar, we, we've got a referral system set up uh, via email where our optometrists in the community attach to the OCT scan. Um, we try and get them to put descriptive terms of symptoms, onset, yes. um, appearance of the fundus, et cetera. So we can, we can triage it to good effect. And if we're fairly sure it's a vein occlusion, we would aim to bring that patient into the clinic in six weeks to, to assess and then probably start anti-VEGF treatment, although it depends on a, a number of factors. Um, and, and the six-week window is based on evidence. You know, we, we, there's no difference. And if you start treating at six weeks or you start treating at one day, the outcomes, if they're treated appropriately, end up the same at the end of it. So it's not quite got that rapid access urgency that a wet AMD does, which is a two-week window um, to get them into start treatment. So, so it's six weeks um and lots of them will have treatment but but some don't and and maybe we can explore that a little bit as well yeah just as also as well on our college website we have our annex for agency referrals and we do recommend that if they do experience or encounter a branch vein occlusion for example that that should be referred on an urgent basis so what yes. urgent would look like might vary across the uk but we always encourage everybody to follow the local protocol and and you're absolutely right mike you know if you have the additional information that you can share that's always added to the mix and gives you more confidence whether the diagnosis is correct or not and if the referral is appropriate. So having that two-way relationship is really critical. Do you feedback to optometrists? Yeah, we do. And that's kind of why we set up that referral pathway because it's an informal education. So people, you know, when they experience that again, they, they've got a better understanding of what they're looking at and what the factors are and how we need to deal with it. I think, I think that's correct. If you didn't have that conversation with your local uh, hospital or trust about, where there's a triage process in place then I think treating it as an urgent case is probably very appropriate apparently yeah um it's only because we've got this filter in place that helps us triage things out and we, we put that in to try and reduce the or to improve the specificity of things and try and make sure that referrals that come into clinic are the right ones to be in clinic in the right time frame um as opposed to taking up slots with urgent cases that actually aren't urgent and we end up treating them in a different in a different manner so, so it's about you know getting the patient seen at the right time with yeah. the right person in the right yeah. place isn't it so it's making sure absolutely. that you make maximum use of the resources in the most efficient way yeah absolutely yeah yeah it's a it, you know i think i said in the in the in, in the talk you know delivering these injections it's great we've got the injections 
but but delivering them is a challenge there's a lot of people who need injections you know our, our growth in injections has gone up 24 every year for the last 10 years so so to meet that demand there's a couple of things we have to do train more people to inject um have injection clinics available all the time but trying to trying to make your clinics as efficient as possible so that people are coming in are people that need to be treated as you say in the right in the right place in the right time frame with the right treatment is is the ultimate goal um we try our best to do that i'm, I'm not 100 sure we do it brilliantly all the time but we try our best to do that so the, the, the principle is there isn't it Mark? So yeah, thank, it you, is. thank you for that that's really that's that's really interesting and and really clear response as well so on, on a related note when people are referred for intravitreal injection treatment for treating macular edema, for example you know what would be the number of injections or the criteria before we would consider something like a steroid implant okay yeah so that's a good question um it, if they if so for example we would tend to think about um steroid implants in a very resistant macular edema, probably in somebody who's diabetic, maybe doesn't have the best diabetic control in the world and has been diabetic for a long time. Um, and it's a very individual decision, but it would usually be somebody who'd been treated, for example, every four weeks with an anti-VEGF injection for about 12 months, maybe longer, and we really weren't getting much of a response. So you might have seen a slight reduction in fluid, but there's still a lot of persistent fluid um you know well over 400 microns in terms of thickness of the retina um and you know repeatedly at four weeks so what we, we call those patients frequent flyers the ones that right. come every every four weeks for injection because ideally we would extend the interval between the injections if we're getting a good response we try and get um what we call a point of maximum improvement yes and and then start to increase the interval if we can't do that if we try for 12 months and we're not getting there then we're going to reassess and think about a different alternative. Now, now that might be trying a different anti-VEGF. Some patients, for whatever reason, respond slightly differently to, to, to the different anti-VEGFs, even though they're, they're very similar. There are differences. Um, in that sense, you don't go straight on towards the steroid implant. You consider a different agent yeah. instead. Yeah, we, we yeah. may well do. We may well do a switch. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and with some of the newer ones like Vibismo, that, that in theory and research world has... Uh, uh, you know, a longer lasting duration, although whether that translates into the real world, we don't know 100% yet because research studies are very good because patients come in at the four week interval or the six week interval when they're told to the real world um, where patients have lives and yes. things get in the way. It's very hard to, 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 to replicate that exactly. So, so yeah, we might try a different anti-VEGF. We might look at the control of the patient. The patients, we might refer them back to the diabetic a uh, nutritionist and clinic for uh, some examination of their underlying diabetic control. But and then we might look at a steroid implant. So, yes, yeah, so somebody with a, a really resistant macular edema that isn't really responding to prolonged anti-VEGF in treatment would be the time we would think about switching either to a different anti-VEGF or to a steroid implant. And, and then the question is, Ozidex lasts up to three months, Iluvian lasts up to two years. So we don't use Iluvian very often. Um, because you know a, a local steroid implant in your eye for two years it, 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 there's a good chance you're going to get a cataract and yes. a good chance you're going to get your pressure going up as well right. so, so we tend to use Ozidex as a sort of the next cab off the rank if you like um, understood yeah and we can repeat that um and every so often but you do need to have a bit of a gap between them um, and again, you've got the same concerns about long-term use of steroids inside the eye. So I guess with that, with the use of the steroids as well, you have to have some monitoring for the checking the IFB as well as part yeah. of that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and sometimes we end up prescribing, you know, um, 
an ocular hypotensive to, to, to manage that pressure. So if, if we do find we're checking them six weeks and the pressure's gone up, we'll sometimes throw in some drops for them to use in the short term um, whilst, whilst the Ozidex is still uh, you know, acting inside the eye. And then, yeah, we do need to keep, keep monitoring on these people. Yeah, yeah, you're spot on. You do. You need to keep a check on them. You can't just let them go off for, for another, <laughs> another six months. <laughs> so, uh, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So uh, another, another related question relate on that on the subject of steroid implants. Now, we often say that, oh, the, the steroid is implanted, the patients are monitored. But what is the actual how? What's the operation involved? If there is implanted, you know, what are the risks ab- above intravenous injections? Are they similar? Are they different? Um, so it's, it's, it's a very similar process. It's an intravitreal implant. So it's a slightly bigger needle and the risks are very similar. So it's a slightly bigger, slightly bigger hole you create with the needle because it's slightly bigger. But if it's done in an aseptic technique, if it's done in a completely aseptic uh, injection room, which they always are, um, the, the main challenge, again, I think I might have touched on this briefly in the webinar. The main challenge is managing the patient when they get home and, you know, keeping that that side of their face dry for at least 48 hours. Um, and it, uh, it sounds really daft, but people actually do touch their eye afterwards. Yes, yes. Um, you know, because you've had a speculum in to keep your lids open. And that causes, a, actually causes more discomfort than the injection. So, and the, they want to touch their eye and push it, in, which is mm. probably the worst thing you can do. So, so fortunately, we don't get very many complications. As I say, the overall rate is about one in 2,000 um, of getting an, an endophthalmitis type infection. And that's that's very rare, but it does happen, and it's fairly serious often when it does happen. So we do need to manage that very well. But so so steroid implants is in, into the vitreous. It's I think I showed in the lecture. It's a little um, small. It's probably not even the size of half your your length of half your thumb uh, thumbnail. Um, and that's into the vitreous, and then that sits in the vitreous close to the retina. So. Some of the challenges are if a patient is pseudophagic and there's a bit of a gap between the back of the capsule and the, and the iris, then sometimes you can find that that comes through into the anterior chamber, which is not good fun. Um, that's not, not what you want. You don't want that there at all. So you do need to do a few checks before you do the implant to make sure it's the appropriate technique um, for that patient. So, But overall, it's very similar. It's very similar to doing an anti-VEGF injection, slightly bigger needle, uh, but into the same area. So even though the actual wound hole size is slightly small, slightly larger, the risks involved are very similar. Yeah, so that, yeah. That, that's really important to know, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. As I say, if it's done in an aseptic environment in the hospital, which it is, that's that's tick that keeps the, the risk very low. Um, and then, and then, as I say, it's managing the patient when they get home. You know, there's always a debate about whether you give them prophylactic anti-infective drops to use. And I think Moorfields have produced some um, evidence to show that it doesn't make any difference if you give them those drops or not. Um, I think the key is it's about having that aseptic technique at home, isn't it, Mike? You know, make sure you wash your hands before and after you touch your eye if you do, you yeah. know, and keep it dry as and follow yeah. the instructions. So it's, it's very much about the patient compliance to minimise the risk, just as it is to in, involving any medicine at some stage. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It is. It is. It is a bit of managing the patient's when they go home and giving them the, and telling them what to do if they're concerned, you know, they need, they need to have a route back into us if they think yeah. something's not quite right, not sitting at home for two or three days thinking, Oh, well, I wonder what I should do. Well, should I go in or not? By which, point, <laughs> yeah. by which point the infection's taken full home. And it's, it's very, very hard then to, 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 to resolve. The even a matter, matter of days can be critical to the outcome as well. Wouldn't it's, it? So, oh yeah, absolutely. So you can imagine you give someone like a, a patient initiated follow-up type approach, you know, have a, a, an emergency number to call, they'll be able to access the code they need straight away. 
Yeah, and we, we've got 24-hour care for that, absolutely, yeah. We, we're lucky as we're an eye hospital, we've got on call all the time. So, so if they do have that, but you're right, yeah, uh, urgent, is, is, is they need to be in touch and we need to get onto it straight away. If you get a particularly unusual or aggressive pathogen in your eye, then we need to start treatment very, very quickly. Otherwise, it takes hold. And as I say, it's, it's incredibly hard to, to solve the issue then. So, uh, you know, p- people can end up, um, well, not, lose their sight or can lose their eye. So yeah, it's a, with timely treatment, that risk is much reduced, yeah, isn't it? A- a- so, absolutely. Absolutely. So, yeah. So, but thank you, Mike. That's that covers a lot of the questions on, on, on vein occlusion and intravitreal injections related to macular edema and yeah. sterile implants. But there's some questions on what AMD. Yep. So there was one a series of questions related to case one in the webinar. You presented a case where the patient had VA less than 696. Yep. Now, in a hard and fast rule world that we that some people may consider with the NICE guidelines, this is but this is below the NICE threshold. But that patient was treated with anti-VEGF agents. Yep. Could you explain what the rationale behind that was and, and how that was uh, what decision you how you came to that decision? Yeah, so that, that patient, there's a couple of factors in, in, in all of this. And they're nice guidelines. And so they're guidance, not absolutes. And I think I might, again, might have mentioned on the night, my, our clinical commissioners are, are very supportive of clinical decisions. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, a patient isn't just a level of VA, are they? They're a person. And so this, this particular lady, who I remember very, very well, because she delayed care because of uh, COVID concerns. It was right in the middle of the first lockdown. So she was absolutely petrified um of catching covid and understandable at the time wasn't it yeah yeah absolutely so she delayed it for about 10 weeks and so it's fairly harsh world if we said well we're not going to at least try and help help your sight in this person so again taking a holistic view of the patient um and then a, a number of other things would have helped us in that decision looking at her scans she didn't have any underlying atrophy or fibrosis so there was a lot of shrem on that on that on that particular scan which is um like a, a material that leaks out from blood vessels so we and we treat that the same as we treat subretinal fluid it's a sign of activity but below that shrem there was nothing to say that a lot of damage had been done already and vas are often variable i mean 6120 to 696 is not it's not a particularly or to count fingers, I think that patient was ultimately. But I mean, we do get variability in VA in clinic generally anyway. But it depends on the person taking a VA, how trained they are, motivated they are to see what the patient can see. They might get, you know, so there's a little bit of a fudge factor with, with the VA sometimes because it's not always a true representation of the patient's vision. But in that particular case, we, we, we'd looked at the scans, we'd looked at the patients, thought actually there's a good chance we might get some resolution and some improvement here. Um, and then overall, we, 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 we took into consideration the patient, the, the person, and had a chat to them and made a, a decision between us that we'd at least try um, some treatment to see how, how she responded. Um, and we might often call that a trial. We might say it's a, it's a treatment trial to see if we get any benefit. Um, and in, in that case, we were, we were very fortunate that she did get a really big improvement straight away. I think it just um, goes to show you've exemplified the, the term, the guidance. You know, it's about using your professional judgment to what's acting in the patient's best interest at this point. And yeah. like you said, they're not just a, a metric. They're not a measure of acuity. They're not just an eye. They're, they're a person. And their yeah. impact, it can be not just on their vision, but just the whole quality of life can be impacted. So that decision needs to be, it's that patient practitioner relationship that trust that you bond with them you know to yeah. make a decision that's in their best interest and I think that was that was clearly exemplified here and I think like you said the patient had a wonderful and a fantastic response 
And it just demonstrates the fact that although there might be guidelines in place, you know, you can justify a decision where you feel that it's in their best interest to do to take a different route. Yeah. And, and you know, basing a decision just on a Snellen VA, which is a very, um, a very uh, it's not a particularly robust measure anyway, full stop. I mean, you know, we all know that Logmar and Bailey levy charts are, are much more kind of um, much more science behind those in a Snellen chart anyway. So. So yeah, you you can't just make it. I mean, if if it was your if it was your mum or your granny who came mm. in and you said, well, no, we're not going to treat you, you'd be like, well, well, why not? Why don't you have a go? Why can't we try? Yeah. Um, and and I guess the flip side of that is occasionally we do get people who present late, and that's often the case with one eye. Um, and by late, I mean that it's been there for a year or two years and right. they've been completely unaware of it. And sometimes you look at their scans, and it, you know you, you know it's not going to make any difference whatsoever because they've got lots of fibrosis and scarring. They might have SREM, they might have subretinal fluid, they might have hemorrhaging when you look in the eye, but you, you know that you're not going to get a good result because the scars are already formed. And so that's a harder conversation sometimes because, you, you know, you're, you're, you're almost telling them that the, the horse has bolted, basically, you cut, there's not a lot to do. And then you get into the whole risk versus reward. So even though that risk is very low at one in 2000, you know, if you're not going to get any benefit out of it, do you really want to run the risk of losing your peripheral vision as well if you get endophthalmitis or your eyes? So that that's often a, a trickier conversation to have if you really are saying, well, we can't treat you. But it's not just based on the VA. It's based on the scan. It's based on the patient. As, as we've just said, it's that it's the whole situation is, is, is involved in um, whether we treat or we don't treat. That's that's on a, on a related note, and you know a lot of optometrists and practice would say, well, if I then add a patient that presents to me with VA below six ninety six, yeah. according to nice guidelines, that would say that they may not be eligible for treatment. But yeah. it, 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 having that discussion beforehand just sets out, you know, that if there's potential for improvement and there are other patient facts that mean they might be a, a candidate for success, then yeah. it, then how, how should these patients be managed? You know, should they be re referred less or more urgently than you would do for a person who's within the criteria? Yeah, so it, it just depends whether 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 they've if they're new if they're a new patient. So if the patient turns up with new new symptoms and new you know things that you've not that have not been seen at hospital before or they've they're completely unaware of it, then I think treat it as a normal you would a normal wet AMD patient. Okay, right. so so I I would get that seen quickly and rapid access two weeks whichever whichever pathway you've got locally and then let the hospital decide that it's a you know it's been there a long time we'll have that conversation with them so if it's somebody who's already been under the eye service locally and has been discharged and you see them that's a slightly different process and you might want to contact your local hospital if you can to to get to get some feedback about that and so again part of our macular referral email thing is is in designed to encourage that where people contact us with the scans and we go okay look we've seen this patient before that scan looks very similar to the one, the last one we've got so you don't need to send that one in but i appreciate that this doesn't exist in it in lots of other places this is very something we set up about four years ago with nhs england as a as a triage system so so across the uk couldn't we <laughs> yeah, well yeah 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 or or a tele you know like a, a tele ophthalmology platform would be ideal scenario which we could you know upload images and i think open eyes and things like that are very good at that that exchange of information which is uh, you know and it flips it works the other way around as well if we if we're discharging patients to community we can say uh, you know we could send not only a letter but the latest scan to the to the optometrist's practice so they know what it looks like when we've decided we're not going to treat anymore and it saves that confusion of people coming back in when they don't need to come back in that was actually a related question, actually, Mike, because a lot of the practitioners, they see patients who do attend their practice 
they've been discharged and they find a, a, a new find that they might be concerned about. And so yeah. having access to the image in a you know a two-way feedback system. Yeah. Yeah. And okay. you know, that's you know, that that's the a requirement of having a, a, an image platform which you can share images as well. Yeah. But in, in if that is if that is available, then it should be used. And I think that's it's a, it's a it's a great thing to have. It means that people don't get necessarily referred again. But if yeah. there is any change, they could get the advice that they need to you know determine whether or not a referral is needed again. Yeah, t totally, totally. If you've got a connection, you've got communication with the, your local hospital. That's that's the way forward. If you don't, I think for safety's sake, you have to treat it like it's a new wet AMD. And and you know if you've not seen them before and they've got no history of of being into the hospital before or they can't remember. I think defaulting to safety is probably the the the, the best way, and 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 let secondary care deal with it afterwards. Um, and it may be that they decide to discharge it, or they may they may treat it. You you know. So I, I think I think treating it as a new finding definitely send it in as you would normally for white AMD. Uh, the impact on the, on the on the vision and the quality of life afterwards is so profound. You know, the benefit of referral without any potential risk of not doing that. Yeah. So, and that, that's what a little bit why I put that first case into the webinar because it, it, it you know, almost deliberately designed to make a question. So, well, hang on, it's not six ninety six and above, and it's yeah. There's a reason. There's a reason we've done that because we treat the patient as a whole, and it's not always a case of of saying you know well we can't treat that, so don't worry about it, don't send it in. At least let us have a look at it, and we can decide either way. Then. Thank you, Mike. Um, on a related note as well, when when again practitioners view. Uh, an OCT scan, for example, we know they're becoming equal, you know, more and more ubiquitous in practice, people offering yeah. them as an additional imaging service. Now, in, in, the, in the presence of a serious pigment epithelial detachment, but there's you know, no sign of neovascularization, would, would, would any treatment in that case be beneficial? So if they do observe those and the patient's asymptomatic, for example, do, do they still need to be referred or what would be your advice? Well, if there's, if there's, no, if there's no evidence of neovascularization, um, I would often say to you, what are we going to treat? Because they're, they're anti-VEGF injections designed to treat the um, the VEGF drive that makes neovascularization. So, um, so, so it depends a little bit on the size of the serous PED. Um, and I would say if they've got suddenly got a big, in, you know, a PED that suddenly popped up. So you've seen this patient before; they come back, but almost a bit different to what you described. They're they're symptomatic. Their vision's dropped. Mm they've got a large serous PED, then yeah, I would send that in. We might not treat it, but we watch it really closely because we know something's about to happen usually. Um, if they've got a little small serous pigment epithelium detachment, they're not symptomatic, um, there's no evidence of anything else going on, then referring them in probably isn't going to be much for us to do. And, and going back to the point early, you kind of end up filling the clinic with things that don't need treatment. Um, so, so if you, and again, you know we're lucky because we have our referral platform so we can filter this stuff out if we yep. need to but but yeah so i think a symptomatic serious ped that suddenly developed i think yeah i think i would refer that in because we would look at that and monitor it closely most definitely i think in some cases people do treat if, they, if they've got a really strong suspicion um we've also got uh, octa which is an extra in imaging technique and if a practice has that then that's a good way of differentiating that PED to work out whether there's something active going on underneath or not. Because um, if there's a if there's a membrane visible on OCTA, that makes the decision a lot easier. If if the membrane isn't there, then again, it helps us just clarify what we're dealing with. Um, so I would say if it's asymptomatic and small, no. If it's large and sudden and there's a change and the patient's got symptoms, then yeah, definitely send them in. So and we, we'd have a look at them. So. Thank you, Mike. That, again, that was again really clear, and I hope, and I'm sure our, our members listening will be, you know, 
really interested to hear what the approach is there locally. And if, yeah. they, if, they're, if they're not sure, they should find out what. The, what uh, yeah, the I think is. I think that's the key to it. If you if you need to try and reach out to local your local service and find out what they want and how they want it done, because you, rather than it being the old fashioned route of oh well, I don't really want to bother the the hospital and the consultant, and we're all very deferential about it. You know, it actually you know i've worked in primary care a lot and secondary care and it actually makes life a lot easier in secondary care if we've got a good conversation with primary care because we can work together to to make sure people are managed in the right way um as opposed to this oh i don't want to bother them they're going to get grumpy with me if i contact them i i would try and contact them and, and find out what they want and how they want you to send it in um if you can so Thanks, Mike. We've just got, lastly, some general questions about intravitreal injections. And um, we touched upon this earlier about, about complication rates. But um, one of the members, uh, delegates at the webinar, had a question relating to the complication rates with the increasing frequency of injections. Does that, does that have a cumulative effect or does the risk stay the same, uh, independent of whether or not the number of injections are taking place? Yeah, no, there, there is a cumulative effect to it, unfortunately. So... Um, and I can't, I did do stats at A level a long time ago, um, but so my stats is, is not, not <laughs> particularly to the front of my mind. But there's definitely a cumulative probability factor, um, which again rewinding a bit is why if we're getting a non-responsive patient, why we might look at a different technique or a different drug, because ultimately we do want to uh, reduce the total number of injections for a patient because you, you're rolling the dice slightly every time you do an injection. So um and without the risk of repeating myself it's very similar to as we described earlier it's about aseptic technique and managing the patient when they get home we do have some patients who've had you know hundreds of injections and not had a problem um and then i can think of one particular gent who um had 72 and then on the 70 30 was really unfortunate um but very much you know, I think that was the external factors involved in that one, if I remember rightly. But um, yeah, there is a cumulative probability in it. So ultimately, we try and minimise the total number of injections. We're only injecting if there's a real benefit to be had to the patient. Um, and if we're not getting a good response, we try a different drug or a different um, anti-VEGF or steroid injection. You know, there, there are other factors, other things that we can do to try and minimize the number of injections that we're doing into the patient so i'm sure that when you have that conversation with the patient as well you, you mean you, you probably discuss when you do the consent process you know the risk will increase the number of injections as well so yeah. just laying out exactly you know what the expectations are from the outset people can make yeah. a much more informed decision couldn't they yeah absolutely and i think that a little bit of the webinar was around what happens afterwards because you know, uh, when you talk to people, people think, oh, well, they've gone off for three injections or one injection. They're, well, it's very rarely three, um, you know, and it's, it's very, very even less uh, often one. It's often a lot more than that. Yeah. And, you know, we say to all our patients when we consent them, look, you know, we're going to get to know you really well because you're going to be coming, <laughs> going to be coming regularly for at least two years. Yes. So, you know, which so you, you, rather than them finding that out as they and you often find people if they don't have that conversation and they come back after three and then they realize they've got to have more, they get quite disgruntled about it thinking, well, hang on, you didn't say that. You've just told me three injections. Yeah. So, so you do need to be really explicit upfront about how long this process is. I think on the flip side, it's quite reassuring as well, isn't it? That you're going to be cared for for that period of yeah. time. And, you know, you've got, you'll build up that relationship with your patient as well. Yeah. And so if, you know, in your, in your area, you might have individuals who see the same injector each time, you know, and that's, that, yeah. that's built a lot of element of trust as well. Yeah. And we, yeah, we do. We get people who ask, they, they've all got favorites. Yeah. Um, and, you know, some some people just won't, you know, they want to be seen by a certain person all the time because they relax them and they feel comfortable and they trust them, you know, and, and that's totally understandable. And if I you know, if I said to everybody, 
well, I'm going to inject you in the eye today, that you know, <laughs> everybody looks a little bit ashen and goes, oh, well, I'm not sure about that. But if, some, if somebody's done it for them before repeatedly and they've been comfortable with the technique and they've been comfortable with the patient, the person, then you can totally understand why they want that person again to do it. It builds um, on compliance as well, doesn't it? Because if they develop that trust at the outset, you know, they're more likely to, you know, follow the... Yeah protocol afterwards to make sure that they don't they minimize the risk of getting a, a potential complication yeah and that, that's a really good point because we do we do get patients there are most people tolerate it really well i mean i can't, can't say they enjoy it and they want to do it but they understand they've got to do it to keep their sight some patients just absolutely uh, really struggle with it and you know they take we give them some anxiety medication beforehand yep. um they, they can faint in the room there's all sorts of things that can go on so like, some, it's like a visit to a dentist isn't it <laughs> it is yeah so some people some people do sabotage their own care they they don't they don't turn up because they just can't face having an injection in the eye and uh, again i think the vein occlusion case i did and that was somebody who who was a bit of a bit of a non-attender because he really didn't like having the injections in his eye um which didn't end up going particularly well for him in the long term. But, uh, you know, I, I can understand that. I can totally understand it. But you're right. If there's a trust relationship and they, they, they're quite happy with the person that does it and they, 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 they're they more likely to come, come along. And interestingly, one of our, one of our nurse ejectors plays classical music in the room all the time. And there's some, some evidence recently at Arvo, they produced a poster that's showing yes. giving music, playing music, and the patient's choice of music, actually, reduce stress and anxiety in the patient having intravitreal injections and um i can't remember what the top three were frank sinatra and you know <laughs> it, was, it was very much of the demographic who you'd expect to be having injections so one of one of our one of our nurse injectors likes metallica and i was like no you, you can't play that <laughs> I, was, I was gonna say i was just gonna say that if you've got some person that's very much in the heavy metal yeah, uh, yeah. I, I don't know how much that's benefiting the patient or the injector so. no exactly yeah <laughs> So moving on to actually some of the treatments, actually. So we discussed in the webinars um, newer agents such as Bayview and Verbismo that you mentioned earlier. You yeah. know, do they have any particular advantages over Lucentis, the one, the one that's been established more in the in, in the last in the last few years? Are they more efficacious? Do they cost less? And you know, how do you decide what agent that you will use for that individual, or is it just a, a is it a, a trust based decision? Um, so uh, Verbismo and Bayview and Ilea all um, last a little bit longer than Lucentis. So there's not many people on Lucentis in our trust anymore. Right. Um, and if they are on Lucentis, they're gradually being switched to Ongarvia, which is a biosimilar of Lucentis, because yes. that's, that's come off patent this year. So um, now biosimilars should be exactly the same as the original drug. There shouldn't be any difference in the treatment or care regime as a result of switching to a biosimilar. So, so we've started switching the patients of Lucentis we've got to on Garvia generally. So far, we're not seeing any difference in the, in, in the longevity of it. So we, we would have previously used ILEA as our first choice because it in, th in theory and in practice, it tends to last a bit longer than most than Lucentis. Um, Bayerview, we've never used. Bayerview had some um, retinal vasculitis and inflammatory issues so it's not been widely adopted because of that so we've never used it in our trust so they've been reported through formal channels as being a potential yeah, yeah, yeah. Ab adverse ab event ab yeah absolutely absolutely yeah yeah so um and then verbismo is relatively new it's really only been out this this year in the uk so we started to switch and again um that that's uh, so that's slightly different. That's an anti-VEGF and it's got a thing called an ANG2 on it as well, which is stops the leakiness of blood vessels, particularly in diabetics. So it's 
It's licensed for diabetic macular edema and wet AMD only at the moment, not for vein occlusion. Right. So we can't we can't use it for that. Um, and their data shows that they can get up to 16 weeks intervals in, in about 60 percent of the patients, which if if that's true, that would be fantastic. So that would create capacity space in our injection clinics. Um, it reduces that cumulative probability risk we were just talking about. Um, it gives the patient a break from coming to the hospital every four, six, eight weeks to get injected. And their family members usually, you know, they've usually got somebody driving them, daughter or a son or a friend or a neighbor. So, so there's many benefits to a longer lasting anti-VEGF. Um, yeah, and as I said, attend the appointment as well if it's a longer yeah. interval. And like yeah. you mentioned as well, in the long term, it might be it might, it might initially be more expensive than the than the older drugs. But over the fact that there's reduced injections over time, it actually might be just as cost effective. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so you might have more injections initially or more cost in the first two years because it's more expensive. But over the longer term, if you model that out over five years, then, you know, 16 weeks as opposed to every six weeks starts starts to be more cost effective for for the medication as well. And, um, you know, it's whilst that isn't a massive factor in your choice of which one you choose, because they're actually all very similarly priced. There's not much difference between any of them. So we, we, we would very much be looking for the one that gives you the best response clinically in the patient and the one that lasts the longest, hopefully. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so now Avastin's off license, off label. So, and as everybody probably knows, it's much, much cheaper than, than the others. Cause it's, it's been around for a long time. Actually it's been around since about 2005. Yes. Um, used primarily in oncology and that does work as well. Now it probably doesn't last quite as long as some of the more newer drugs. Um, and so, and that's actually, Going back to some of your other questions, if you had a patient that was outside NICE guidelines um, and you, or it was a slightly atypical presentation, sometimes you might use Avastin as an anti, when an anti-VEGF is warranted, but it's probably not in terms of the kind of licensing rules around certain things. You might then want to use Avastin to treat somebody, uh, particularly if it was a trial to see if there's going to be a benefit of some kind. So, so there's quite a lot of things to consider, isn't it, before you yeah. then decide which is the most appropriate agent? Yeah. And on a related note as well with the Bismo, are you actually seeing any positive impact on the treat and extend protocol in, in terms of the number of visits or the frequency of injections? Are you seeing that borne out in the in the practical side of things rather than yeah. just research? We're, we're fairly early in the piece with that. So we, we have been switching our frequent flyers. So the ones that come every four weeks that we cannot get beyond four weeks with ILEA um or lucentis or avastin or whichever whichever anti-vegf we've used so and they are we're getting positive responses out of those definitely that they, they are all starting to show improvements within one or two injections whereas previously they've 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 definitely required a much more frequent dosing so so if that plays out yes we will see an improvement in the treatment extend intervals i think it's still too early to be absolute about that at the moment so um, and also, I think, you know, actually talk, talking about choice of drugs, sometimes we'll, we'll start with ILEA, or we would have started with ILEA, for example, and you find it's not responding, but, but you'll switch a patient to Lucentis um, or Avastin, and they respond. And, you know, even though the theory says that, you know, ILEA is better and stronger, sometimes you find a patient doesn't respond to it, and they just prefer, you know, they do respond to Lucentis. So, so there's a little bit, again, reevaluating your decision making if the patient isn't responding the way you think. Right. Have we made the right decision? Have we got the right diagnosis? Right. What about treatments? So do we try a different treatment and see what's happened? So I guess if you think about that in, you know, if you're managing a, a bacterial conjunctivitis and you prescribed an antibiotic and it didn't respond within seven days, 
you're going to go, oh, hang on, well, have I got the right diagnosis? I might try a different antibiotic now. And it's very similar process, just in a slightly yeah. different sort of longer format, I guess. I think it's recognised and gave a perfect example of that, you know, being confident and have the trust in yourself to accept that the initial diagnosis or treatment may not be appropriate. And then yeah. you can refine that over time. And as yeah. long as you've got the evidence that support that decision initially, I don't think anyone needs to worry. No. So, you know, it's, it's making that an informed decision at the time with the information that you had and then yeah. subsequently if there's new evidence comes to light you should you should act on it a- absolutely yeah and some, sometimes treating somebody and you don't get a response is the new evidence that you need yes um, you, you didn't know that beforehand so um or sometimes time is a diagnosing factor as well albeit we try not to use that sometimes um but it, it, it's yeah i think it's it's sometimes you switch because some people respond better to, to one rather than the other and you know i couldn't tell you why they just do it's a, it's a watch and wait, isn't it, at the moment? Isn't yeah. it? You know, there might be some reports in the future that followed up the, the outcomes in natural practice that you could have another evidence to support whether or not the biosmo is effective or not compared to other agents. Yeah, and everybody we switch, we put on a separate database and we watch them. And, and you know, if we have to switch them back, then we switch them back and we record that as well. Um, you know, so, so we don't just switch it and forget about it. We're, we're actively watching it to make sure it is doing what, what we wanted to do, that it's actually responding. I mean, that, that data be amenable to, you know, a clinical audit, for example, you know, you can understand yeah. that within the trust, you know, you can, you can then decide, you know, what was the most effective agent. And, and if that's published, you know, that becomes a, an evidence base to decide what, yeah. what agent you should use in the first line, for example. So yeah. again, it's yeah. watch your weight, really, isn't it? And it's, but it's, it's exciting. It is, yeah. And and to watch this space, that's that's the next yeah. thing we're doing is a big audit on this stuff. So so hopefully we'll get that, that published at some point in the future. So. Fantastic. I've got one last question, Mike. Yeah. So, you know, with lots of uh, very much growing interest in, you know, optometrists leading injecting clinics, you know, but what training did you receive, you know, to become an accredited injector? Was there any formal training element involved? And if there was any advice that you could give to listeners out there who wish to follow a similar path, what what would you advise? Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, first and foremost, is you've got to do it in a hospital, you you know, or or a secondary care practice under ophthalmologists. Um, Moorfields run a, a non-medical doctor intravitreal nurse inject, or, uh, injector um, course. Um, it's, it's full of nurses, orthoptists, and some optometrists. Um, and that can, for, that can give you a sort of formal day certificate qualification, if you like. Still doesn't allow you to inject. You need to follow a protocol locally to do that. So, for example, our trust, we have a policy of observing uh, a, a number of injections, so 50. Um, and then uh, uh, once you've observed 50, um, you then carry out 50 under supervision um, with, an, with a consultant, okay? And then once, or with a, the lead nurse uh, for the last 20 actually is what we've changed to recently. Um, and then at the end of that, you will get signed off. So you need to have, uh, I would say you need to have a bit of formal evidence certificate of a of a course you've attended and then in in-house training the first bit's not essential because some some places say well hang on we can do that locally we don't need to send you off to it but it it's always good to have that little bit of um extra formal certification from a governance point of view i guess um but it needs to be in-house training uh, you need to observe a number and then sign off and then carry out a number under supervision sign off and then you're accredited to to carry out so that's just the 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 first part is actually getting the accreditation but you know in order for you to to maintain that level of competence you need to be doing it regularly i guess as well yeah you absolutely you do and so one of the one of the optom injectors that i work we've we've trained that does that i I don't do it very often she does a regular session every week 
Um, and she is one of the ones that people ask for every time because she's quite good at relaxing people and making people feel comfortable. And actually, as an optom, she's able to also report the scans at the same time. So, so she's got sort of two strings to her bow when she's doing it. So she's particularly useful from that point of view. But most of our injectors, non-medical injectors and nurse injectors, and, and we, when we evaluated uh, this whole process, we, we decided that nurses are much more familiar with aseptic technique than optoms are. Um, they're used to handling needles. They've got that you know, bit more of a sort of a medical kind of training than we do. And optoms are actually very good at looking down slit lamps and, and pulling together lots of information about a patient. So we tend to have optoms in clinic make, making a decision for treatment more than carry out the injections um, and you know that can be quite complicated sometimes and you know we've got some optomes doing yag and things like that because it's a slit lamp scale nurses aren't good at oh they aren't used to looking down slit lamps as much as we are so so you know it's much more amenable for us to do it and usually easier for them to uh, work out aseptic technique and injection protocols but optomes are doing it and that's you know with the demand we've got that we probably need all the all the injectors we can get. We've got we've got a couple of orthoptists training for it at the moment as well. So the, the way that IK is moving forward, it's a multidisciplinary approach, and, and we should we, and we should approach it that way if we want to be you know serious about ensuring that we can meet this demand. Yeah. You know, treating NHS backlog if there is one in your area, and and making the most of optometry skills that we know that they have. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. And we also have the uh, the college also produce the expanding scope of practice guidance as well. So okay. for those that are interested in becoming an injector, it just sets out the principles that you should adhere to in terms yeah. of your knowledge, skills and experience in order for you to undertake additional roles yeah. within, 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 your, within your practice or within a hospital setting. Uh, and, and, and I think I would strongly recommend our listeners to, to uh, follow that guidance as well. And that's available on our website. Yeah. Actually, the Vell College of Ophthalmologists have got their OPT training thing, which is about undertaking secondary care skills and primary care skills, which covers anti-VEGF injections as well. So, um, but yeah, you'd, you'd need to find locally somebody who's going to mentor you and teach you and train you and, 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 and be supportive. But you do need to do it regularly to be, to be good at it. You know, it's not something you can pick up once, once a year and do it. Yeah. You, you need you need regular sessions whether you want to do it or not on a, on a regular basis so. well, it's, well it's a fantastic space and a really interesting area that you know a lot of eye care that's developing at pace you know there's lots of studies that are coming out you know telling us about reporting about different treatments and just goes to show the growing number of optometrists involved in that level of care is is it's fantastic to see yeah, yeah absolutely and you know your what your point earlier about multidisciplinary teams it, it, there's no way we can deal with the demand um, without using multidisciplinary teams. So there's lots of scope for optometry to be involved as a key part of all of these things. Um, you know, we, we, we did a, a service revamp two or three years ago, um, which very much involved optoms, orthoptists, nurse injectors, HCAs, technicians. It, it, there was very little ophthalmology involvement in it, and it was the only way we could deal with the, with the demand. We, we, we were doing, we were, growing by 20% a year in terms of number of patients. Number that's, of that's a huge number. Yeah. yeah, it's enormous. And we just couldn't deal with it. And we couldn't feature-proof it either without expanding the multidisciplinary team and the workforce. And, th and then interestingly, this year, or early last year, we had a, um, a, I'll call them management consultants, but they're not. They work in healthcare. They came in and evaluated all of our services and basically said, you know, well, medical retina does very well because they use multidisciplinary teams. They've got yes. lots of optometrists and, and, and some of the other services don't. And you should do because that's the way you're going to meet your demand. And you touched on a COVID backlog. There's still a lot of backlog out there. Um, you know, the cataract backlog in our trust has been whittled down by using a private provider. But there's still 
plenty of people waiting to be seen in glaucoma and other services. So, you know, we, we, we are well placed with our skill set to be involved in the care going forward, definitely. So. I couldn't agree more, Mike. So we've come to the end of the questions. Uh, and thank you again, Mike, for your excellent feedback and your insight on this, again, really important and growing specialty area. It's been wonderful to speak with you. And again, thanks again for your time and all your support. No problem at all. Thank you very much for the invite anyway. It's very, very enjoyable. Thanks, Mike. Take care. Okay, take care. Bye. Bye.